Welcome to the Internet Report, where we uncover what's working and what's breaking on the internet and why. It's a new year. <laughs> Happy 2021. We're all glad uh, to be on the other side of 2020. We're back from the break. Um, luckily, there were no major outages or incidents that happened during that period, so it was nice and quiet, which is just the way we like it. Um, but then, you know, we came back yesterday. From Started it with a bang. Yep. Yeah, and uh, you know, like uh, Slack had a really significant, lengthy uh, incident yesterday. Um, so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that and kind of going under the hood. Um, because we don't really have any other news to report. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, but we do have um, a fun expert spotlight mm. session today with um, Forrest Brazil, who is um, a cloud architect, among uh, many other things he does. Um, so stay, after the Slack outage, stay tuned for that uh, in the expert spotlight session. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be really, really good. Um, great interview. And Forrest uh, is so talented and entertaining. It's great drawings. And we'll show you some of that stuff. So <laughs> lots to cover today. So the, um, you know, kind of the topic of the day that uh, a lot of folks have been asking us about is what went down with the Slack outage. Now we have to say like Slack hasn't yet issued an RCA detailing kind of what the, what the cause of the issue was. Um, so we're going to kind of just stick with what we saw um, right. during the outage um, and kind of show you uh, all of the, the gory details on that. Started around um, pretty early in the morning if you're yeah. from a specific perspective, right? It was around 6.30? Mm-hmm. So around 6.30 Pacific mm -hmm. time, um, you're on the East Coast, 9.30 there. You probably would have noticed it. Um, yep. I was not on Slack at 6.30 a.m. Um, no, so that, that's interesting. I started noticing it more closer to around 10, 10 to mm -hmm. 10. And I think this degradation that we see yep. in the availability, that stepped, um, you know, slow yeah. degradation, I think maybe... That's that's probably the reason why I didn't really see it um, at nine thirty, but around ten fifteen, it was it was all out. Yeah, yeah, and that that's interesting. So we're we're looking at like right here where I have my my mouse rolled over is fourteen thirty two, so it's like nine thirty Eastern time, six thirty mm -hmm. Pacific time, and that's kind of where it starts to really manifest itself. And you're right, it's kind of interesting because sometimes we see with outages, you just see this sharp drop off. You know, it's available right. and it's not available. It's, binary. But here we're seeing kind of like a gradual step down um, in availability, um, depending on the location. And then at its worst, we see kind of like this, you know, chasm here. And then it had a similar recovery. It seems exactly. like it was, it was um, gradual and staged. And then it wasn't until about four hours later, um, 1838 UTC. So that's um, uh, 10.30 Eastern time, 1.30 Pacific time that we really uh, oh, sorry. Switch, switch. <laughs> Ten thirty Pacific, <laughs> one thirty Eastern time. That uh, that we start to see oh that it's God. yeah. As there's yeah. too too many time zones um, that we start to see that it's really kind of fully back online. Right, um, and, it's and this kind yeah. of matches um, Slack's kind of you know um, status as well. Where around I think ten fifteen ish um, Eastern again. 715 Pacific. Um, they started acknowledging the outage, which again, um, it, it was great of them, right? Like to be transparent and to say, yeah, we know there's something going on. Um, and then the around 12, I think 12 p.m. Uh, Pacific 
was when they said most of the issues, at least with respect to um, users, you know, using Slack um, to, to communicate was resolved. Yeah. However, it wasn't Google Calendar and Outlook issues that were still persistent. And that went really long. It was almost, uh, you know, till midnight, they were still resolving those yeah. issues. Yeah, it's like, I think around like 4 p.m.-ish, they were saying that it was mostly resolved for users. But yeah, it did, it went pretty late. Um, and and that was, that was really interesting. And I mean, typically when we've seen something that this is, this is as widespread as, as widespread as it is and yeah. affects so many users, it's not typically something that's related to the network, right? And we'll take a look at that in a little bit, but just um, if we look a little cl more closely on what we were seeing, like, you know, all this red here, right? Like we were seeing mm -hmm. a few different things. One of them was um, HTTP errors. So we were getting like a 503 service unavailable uh, from the uh, uh, servers, front-end yeah. servers. Um, and we were also seeing, you see here, receive errors. A lot of just, timeouts. There's a lot of timeouts. Um, and that's, that's really just an indication that the server's taking so long to respond. You know, it's just our test is, you know, we're just timing out from that standpoint. Yeah. We um, have um, a threshold when we set up the test um, and that's timing out. So hence we see them as a timeout. Um, which, which is kind of interesting, like either the server is responding, saying I'm not available or like rejecting with a 503, or the server is just not taking, I mean, it's taking too long to even respond. Yeah, and it, and it could very not. well be that, you know, it would have given a, a service unavailable error if it just, if we gave it a little bit more time. Exactly. And that's kind of interesting, you know, we see here, like if we look at like just how long it was taking to receive these error mm -hmm. messages, it was, you know, we do see kind of this response time spike. And if we look at, you know, like a little bit more closely at what's actually contributing to this response time, you know, we see that, for example, DNS and Connect and SSL, very small proportion of uh, overall response time is really wait time. And often that's really due to the server, um, like a lot of it is that server processing time could also right. be some uh, reverse path, but we know that the network is looking pretty good. So um, it's, um, it's really that server that's taking a long time to just even, you know, Respond to, a to respond. Yeah, response. yeah. This that's that's the pie chart is actually really interesting um, because again, it's another proof point that it's most likely not the network, um, yeah. and it's actually the backend server and the application that's yeah. it's it's becoming sluggish, probably overloaded. Um, you know, we don't know yet as to what yeah. the RCA looks like, but I think we confirm that again with going into the um, network connectivity that that we're seeing right now with path utilization mm -hmm. here which is just showing you the network, you know, uh, connections to Slack.com, which is to Slack's edge. Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting, just even, you know, we see, again, we're confirming the network paths are clear, which we kind of already know from the application layer because we're getting responses from the server. So we know kind of like, you know, we're able to reach the server. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting, even just looking at kind of like Slack's architecture here, we see that, um, you know, they're not front-ended by, even though they use AWS to host their, um, their edge servers, um, they are not using uh, CloudFront, which is AWS's CDN service. Mm -hmm. um, but they're not using CloudFront to front end um, the, the actual service. Or any other CDN, right? Like exactly. They really are just, they're using uh, like, what looks like DNS load balancing to uh, you know, effectively map 
users based on their location to their instances that are hosted within AWS. That's really interesting just from an architecture standpoint, because we see in a lot of like instances, heavily used applications, they're often fronted by CDNs. Um, Now, this pattern um, that we're seeing here was common across um, this particular, um, you know, uh, UI right now is showing the Slack.com. But we saw that with, you know, while connecting to um, the API, we're trying to log into our own instance of Slack as well. Um, this architecture was pretty standard across their services. Yeah, so they have this, you know, we're, we're seeing like that common architecture across all of the Slack associated services mm-hmm. and also a common outage, right? Like we're seeing that like the similar behavior that we saw here with like their um, website is also what we were seeing across like their APIs and, and um, other services, even our own uh, Slack uh, instance, if you will. Right. So, so it's pretty pervasive from an impact perspective, but also from the number of services that were impacted, like, um, yeah. like Slack.com, just their homepage was not available too. Right, right. Um, yeah, so, so really widespread, which again is another indication this is probably something that's application related, even on the back end, like, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes there can be network issues if you're connecting from like your edge service to like an origin or a data center. But Again, that seems pretty unlikely um, uh, given, you know, where these edge servers were located and, right. and where they would have to all like, it'd have to be like some common fault point, which seems pretty unlikely. Usually data centers and other organs exactly. would probably have some redundancy in terms of connectivity. But anyway, so um, so not front-ended by a CDN, but interestingly, if we look at like the components of the page, a lot of the components of the page are fronted by a CDN provider. So they're still leveraging uh, those services. Um, Yeah, and it's kind of interesting if we were to look at a little bit more closely on what we were seeing when we were able to get a response. Um, This is actually interesting because we were trying to like see if it could be um, like an authentication issue, you know, like you're enabled to log into Slack. So we'd set up this um, script that actually tries to take us to um, our our instance of Slack. So the expected page here should have been um, to sign into your account. Right. Uh, But we never even got there. So, you know, it was definitely not something to do with authentication in the back end or anything like that um, in here, which so yeah. it was, it was like the service was hard down. It wasn't like, exactly. you know, there was not that, you know, like you could load uh, even their, their homepage uh, as normal. It yeah. was really like, you couldn't even, it couldn't even do that much. Right. Um, so we see here, like under normal conditions, conditions yep. um, we'll, we'll actually get a page that looks like this. That's like prompting yeah. a login. Um, and so that's what we'll see, but that's what we see when the issue resolved itself. Um, so, so the other interesting thing about this was that um, because a lot of like media outlets kind of, you know, they, they knew things were going down, you know, like they, the people were reporting Slack issues and a lot of folks like went to like services like Down Detector, for example, um, which is basically like uh, crowdsourced, right? Like you have people right. that are kind of self-reporting when they have issues. Um, and subjective, right? Because you're reporting that something's not working, but you're not really clear on what it is. Like, was it your, you know, Wi-Fi connectivity? And this is, this is like, you know, um, not an enterprise um, kind of crowd, not an enterprise crowdsourced, crowdsourced service, right? It's right, um, right. basically a consumer service. So it could be anything that people thought was wrong. 
but there was a lot of chatter with like Zoom was going down and Teams was going down. It almost seemed like, you know, um, God didn't want um, Workday to start on Jan 4th. But um, I think we noticed that that was not, yeah. that was not the case at yeah, all. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like, you know, maybe there were some folks who had went to like one of these services like Down Detector and then also saw like other things like, oh, mm-hmm. people are also complaining about like Zoom and teams and other things and you know like to your point again so subjective could be anything and you know those sites all reported that they were available at that time and we can see even here like you know based on our tests that like around that same time so this is like um, 1440, this is, you know, this is uh, Zoom, right? What we're looking is, at here. That's, is Zoom. that's correct. So we're yeah. looking at like, um, we're looking at Zoom and just what their availability looks like. And it's all green, you know, they, they were um, available during, um, you know, like all day yesterday and yeah, um, pretty much almost every day. So right. Um, it looks like they've been available all through uh, Sunday. So if you want to move right there, then I mean, it's very to the to the left there. Yeah, yeah. It, so it shows that they were up and yeah. um, available. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So lots of you know. So this is you know really kind of um, the clear clear evidence um, when people are reporting issues, whether they're consumers that are reporting issues with with a service that that you're responsible for, or if it's just like, you know, uh, employees that are like, hey, I can't reach Zoom or I can't reach like WebEx or some other service that they might be using, you know, you can very quickly determine like, is this subjective? Is this something that's isolated to an individual or, you know, verify one way or the other, there's actually a service issue. Right, and I think like, for an IT team, like if you're if you're running behind down detector to see if something is wrong, that's probably not the right place to start. Um, because again, to the point we were making, it's it's too subjective. You don't really know what's going on, and um, so that's again why hard data makes yeah. a lot of difference. Like you know, just being able to see this and say, yeah, you know, the zoom zoom is not really an issue. Um, you know, and and prioritize what really is, which absolutely you know absolutely. yesterday's main concern was just slack. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, I think like a lot of enterprises today, they, they have dozens, if not hundreds of applications that they're running um, for their workforce or, mm-hmm. you know, um, other parts of their business. And, you know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, noise out there, right? Like, yeah. and so to your point, prioritizing where you're going to spend your time and cycles, um, you know, just kind of knowing. Yeah. 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 And And being able to contextualize it in a way that, you know, that you can actually um, be um, actionable in that particular case. For instance, like if it's an application, like being able to quickly even say in this, in in the case of Slack, whether it's the application or the network. So you're even, you know, utilizing the right team's resources to come and troubleshoot. I think that's really important with the kind of data you get as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking of outages and cloud and resilience, um, we talk a lot about kind of just like issues with like having um, just a few infrastructure providers like, you know, the three three big cloud providers, the CDM providers like Akamai and Cloudflare and how when they experience an issue, how it can just kind of have catastrophic impact because they're, they're really like um, kind of where everything is like everything lives is right these now. days, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so really excited. Uh, coming up next, we have expert spotlight. Um, you know, as Arshana mentioned, Forrest Brazil. You're going to sit down with him, and you guys are going to talk about um, resilience oh. and um, and the different cloud providers. So, um, stick around for that.
guys, welcome to the Expert Spotlight. This week, we have Forrest Brazil joining us. Uh, Forrest is a cloud architect, writer, speaker, cartoonist, the list goes on. But Forrest is an AWS serverless hero. Um, he's based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and currently works for a cloud guru, um, um, a company that is dedicated in educating people about the cloud. So we thought it made perfect sense to have Forrest on the call today, talk to us a little bit about the cloud, um, specifically dipping into some resiliency aspects um, and uh, just educate us a little bit more. Forrest, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Archana. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So uh, the way I got introduced to you um, was I subscribed to your blog, uh, Cloud Irregular, a long time ago, but then one article specifically caught my attention, which was um, in relation to the AWS um, Kinesis outage from Thanksgiving time. I thought um, you had done a really good job talking about you know, um, the incident itself, but also delved into some of um, the resiliency aspects and the dependencies that exist. So I thought that might be a good place for us to um, start today's conversation with. Um, so one of the most common and what are the most common and possibly dangerous resiliency gotchas that get overlooked while designing a cloud hosted application? Sure. Well, and it's great to hear that someone reads the blog. So uh, <laughs> thanks for, for that uh, uh, affirmation there, I guess. Uh, and just for context, for any listeners that may not be aware of what we're talking about, this, this Kinesis outage happened in late November. It was just before Thanksgiving here in the United States. And uh, a, uh, I think about a day-long outage, really, with the AWS Kinesis service ended up kind of cascading to take down a number of other services. So a lot of uh, apps and, and systems that rely on AWS were offline for a period of time, and there wasn't really much you could do other than just sit there and wait for AWS to, to get it back up and running. So that's the context of, of what we're talking about. And uh, you, you asked the question about what are these common uh, resiliency gotchas. And I, I just want to be very clear up front. I, I don't work for AWS, right? I wasn't in the room. You know, none of us can really know what went on there other than specifically what they put out in their uh, root cause analysis that came out a few days later. And I highly recommend reading that if you haven't had a chance to check it out. It's very, very interesting. Detailed uh, root cause analysis um, in there as to what happened, uh, what they missed, and then going back and recorrecting some of the things that they had mentioned. Um, so yeah. Yes, yeah, very, very highly recommend reading that. So my, my goal in anything that I say today is not to diss AWS. You know, they did a fantastic job of recovering from this. This happens to everybody. And that gets to your question, Archana, which is what are these common uh, resiliency gotchas that, that you can avoid if you're trying to build, whether it's on AWS or, or elsewhere. And really the, the biggest thing that comes to mind, this is not cloud specific, it's, this is as old as time, is uh, the, the biggest mistake people make is they assume that their resiliency measures are going to work and they haven't actually tested them. Uh, I started my career in the cloud as a DBA. Um, the, the most classic form of resiliency is backup and restore. That's what DBAs are all about, right? And we did uh, restore testing on a regular schedule. You know, it, you can take backups all day long. You could take diffs, you can take log backups, but until you've actually confirmed that you can get that data back up and running, it's not corrupted and that you have a, a repeatable, predictable framework of time for doing that, then you don't have backups, right? Uh, so. It, uh, this is why I'm so excited, I think, uh, that AWS at reInvent just a few weeks ago announced something called the Fault Injection Simulator. I haven't had a chance to play with this yet. I'm actually not sure if it's truly available hands-on or if it's just one of these announcements that won't be available for a few more months. But it's this idea of bringing chaos engineering uh, into your workplace where it's accessible to you without a lot of really specialized knowledge. The idea that I want to 
give myself some idea of what the range of failures are that can occur. What will happen if my storage suddenly disappears in the cloud? What will happen if all of a sudden you just cut the link to my identity service, which in fact, what happened in the Kinesis outage where it was linked unbeknownst to many to the Cognito service, which people use uh, to do authentication and authorization. What happens if that were to suddenly go away? Would I fail gracefully? Would I just have to be offline for a period of time? And we should be very clear to make the point that sometimes it's an okay contingency plan to be offline for a period of time. If that's what your SLAs are with your customers, if it makes sense cost-wise, you know, to endure the occasional couple hour outage versus having to pay for, I don't know, replication to another reason, that region, I should say, that, that could be totally reasonable. But you don't necessarily know how exposed you are until you've actually set up those tests. You've done the game days. You've done the, uh, you know, the, the chaos engineering, the outage simulations, whatever the case may be. So, so do that. That's the most common mistake people make. They take the cloud provider's word for it that, you know, yeah, we handle downtime mm -hmm. under the hood or whatever. And then they just don't ever test to see how exposed they are. So definitely know what your risk is. That's, that's very interesting. I came from a testing background myself. Um, well, I used to work for Cisco a long time ago, and um, we used to test um, service provider solutions in there. Um, and one um, particular Q&A, like subject or category that we would like forcefully like and make sure we test is this resiliency piece, right? Like, you know, literally like snap cables out um, and see what happens to the entire system. And it's interesting in the cloud, you, people don't, you mentioned people don't do that, but also that's the challenge of the cloud. You don't really own and control, um, you know, the services or the hardware in there. So how do you actually simulate um, kind of this, this chaos um, in there? Um, you said fault, uh, what was the AWS service uh, again? Fault Injection Simulator. It's brand okay. new. It was literally just announced in December at reInvent. So something I'm looking forward to playing with in the new year. Of course, there's uh, existing chaos engineering discipline that's out there through companies like Gremlin and through work like what Netflix has done with Chaos Monkey and its many descendants. Uh, so definitely recommend looking into that if that's not something that you're thinking about today. Don't let that necessarily push you to a point where you're making very expensive redundancy decisions that don't have the you know ROI that you would need them to that have. You would need, but it's right. important to know how exposed you are. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. I learned something new today. That's that's great. Um, so you know you met in the Kinesis incident we noticed and and this was something AWS came out and spoke as well that there was Cognito that was impacted, CloudWatch was impacted, and you touch upon this in your blog post in, in much more detail. Um, but what are some of these like unknown and hidden dependencies within a cloud ecosystem that's just waiting to be revealed when, you know, yet another outage strikes? Yeah, well, and first, I think that's part of the, the problem is that a lot of them are unknown unknowns. I mean, I, there was never a reason for any customers of AWS to know that Cognito had a dependency under the hood to Kinesis. I mean, right. it wasn't like you're getting any direct benefit from the Kinesis service if you're using Cognito. It was some analytics thing they were doing under the hood to analyze like API usage or access patterns, right? There was no need for a customer to know that until the day that Kinesis went down and took Cognito with it. And of right. course, there's all sorts of other dependencies like that under the hood that, that we'll never know about un until the day that they're exposed by some outage. Um, that said, AWS in particular has a relatively large and shallow dependency tree, and there are some core basic services under the hood where you know if one of those goes down, a lot of people are going to have a bad day. EC2 is certainly one of those. S3 is certainly one of those. And we saw that back in 2017, right, when S3 went down and seemed like it took half the internet with it. 
<laughs> you see on the S3 outage, um, because the impact, well, S3 went down, EC2 went down too, but there were some web pages that were not loading because one of the critical components on the page was an image that was sitting on S3. And just the way, you know, a particular page was um, architected, I don't want to say who, which, who exactly this, this service provider or this vendor was, but it was interesting. We're like, why isn't this page loading just because S3 is down and image is not a critical dependency. So that's another angle as well, but yeah. Yes, well, hilariously, I think with images on web pages, perhaps the most infamous example of that is the AWS status page itself, which it's had all sorts of problems, right? Remember that in 2017, yeah. where the the, uh, the image that you know showed X or green check mark was not able to load not because it posted it on S3, which was down. So they, the the status page was saying everything was fine because it was just having to use those cached uh, images. So yeah, it's it's an example of something that you wouldn't know unless you'd actually simulated that failure scenario and see what goes away when you pull your storage out from under the hood. So S3, uh, EC2 for sure, um, Route, Route 53, which is AWS's DNS service, uh, on the occasions when that has gone down, it's been very bad for people. Now, uh, it's important to remember that most of these services are usually limited to a regional scope when they go out. For example, the Kinesis outage was limited to US East 1, uh, as I believe was the S3 outage. Route 53 goes down, that could potentially be a worse problem because that's not region uh, specific, exactly. right? It's DNS, it's everywhere. Uh, IAM is the same thing. If, if you have an IAM problem, you know, probably, uh, well, let's hope everybody doesn't have a problem. That could still be just, you know, a component of IAM in a particular region that would be having issues. We've seen that in the past. Um, but you don't have quite as much ability to protect yourself in terms of how you architect from these services that don't isolate themselves by region, don't expose a region limited fault tolerance to you. Right. You, Route 53 is a great example in terms of the impact of DNS. And, and this we noticed, um, do you remember the Dyn outage that happened um, a few years ago, I guess it was 2016, uh, where Dyn is a DNS service provider and they were DDoSed. And we found out that a lot of companies did not have resiliency with respect to their DNS provider itself. So again, like it, it seems like, you know, something outside, it would seem simple. Yeah, you need to have resiliency everywhere and DNS is probably something that you should, but until it actually happens, um, we did not see a few um, service providers have redundancy from a DNS perspective. So that, that's absolutely a great point. Like depending on the service, um, the impact could either be regional or, or global. And, um, and if it is global, in some cases, yeah, you can protect yourself, but then sometimes you, I mean, you're just left dead in water. Right. It's a little bit of a black box. And that's part of the reason why we sign up for cloud services and build on them in the first place, because we want to do less management. We want to have less to worry about. We want to abstract these responsibilities down onto people who work for the cloud provider. But yeah, the flip side of that is when you have an outage, to some extent, I mean, you can sit back and relax a little bit, but that has its own form of stress, right? It's like when Slack went down um, yesterday, uh, everybody was sitting back and relaxing because they couldn't communicate. Um, well, well, that, that's great. Um, and, you know, talking about resiliency, I think uh, one of the other interesting things that you did or you did last year was um, write a book, um, which was uh, an introduction to the cloud. And um, you talk about one particular chapter in there that's about resiliency and you know um, reliability. Can you just uh, give us a little bit more insight into that? 
Yeah, so the, the book is called The Read Aloud Cloud. It's available uh, wherever books are sold. It's from Wiley Publishing, the makers of the Four Dummies books and things like that. Um, and it's it's sort of an outgrowth of a uh, long-running cloud-related webcomic that I've done for A Cloud Guru. So there's lots of cartoon drawings in the book. It's very accessible uh, for all ages. But really, it's designed to be something that you can hand to your non-technical friend or family member, help them understand what is this thing called the cloud? You know, what are the jobs that you can have in the cloud? It's, it's just, it's hard for us I think sometimes to take those really abstract concepts and, and make them real to people, right? What does a cloud architect build? Why does that matter? What is cloud resiliency? Why does that matter? And in the chapter of that book that talks about it, we go through kind of in layered detail, what are the different steps that these cloud providers take in order to give you more resiliency than you would have if you were just, for example, running a blade server under your bed, you know, like a lot of small businesses used to run and, and some still do, or, or just a single server rack in your closet. What is the cloud giving you that you wouldn't have if you just went back to that, right? So yes, we talk about these occasional, you know, terrible outages where half the internet goes down for half a day. Um, but there are a lot of resiliency steps that are being taken by the cloud provider. And that starts with, of course, things like, you know, redundant power supplies and uh, network interface cards and everything in the servers and racks they have in their data centers, up to multiple data centers that are in availability zones, right? A lot of people tend to think availability zone is a one-to-one -one relationship with the data center. That is not true. An availability zone often has multiple data centers in it. Um, and then, of course, you have multiple availability zones that are put together to make a region, right? And, uh, you know, you, you go on from regions there. Regions and, and you'd be yes. that onto it. Yep. Exactly. So the book talks you through all that and, and you know, even talks about building cross-region architectures. And I think at that point, you've probably lost half the audience that would be <laughs> reading a book like that. But uh, it gets up to that point and then it's like, okay, you know, uh, this is this is as far as we should we should take this chapter. Um, but, you know, I, I think we don't often even give enough credit to the uh, software uh, expertise that's, that's the cloud provider is bringing as well, right? Things like cell-based architectures and, and shuffle sharding, if you read what AWS does to limit blast radius of failures inside of those data centers, inside those availability zones. It's, it's uh, really can only come from years and years and years of exposure to failures, motivation to limit failures, right? right. And seeing the traffic coming from hundreds and thousands of customers, limiting things like noisy neighbor problems and all of that. Uh, so you're, you're getting access to a real hive mind of innovation with the cloud that does decrease the frequency of outages over time. Now, when those outages do occur, they may be bigger and more catastrophic because they affect more people, right? But that's the trade-off that you make. So these concepts that you talk about, right, like, you know, the people who are not aware of, like availability zones into region, those are well documented and those are well marketed. And so uh, people understand that. But the more nuanced details of it, like, um, what would you recommend for someone who's just starting out in the cloud trying to build this? Do you recommend they uh, any place they could go to to understand this, or is it best to just you know sit down with their cloud provider and and you know just ask them all the specifics that you need to with respect to understanding what cloud providers do to protect you from these type of outages or scenarios? Yeah, definitely sit down with your uh, you know your TAM, your solutions architect, whoever you're working with on the cloud provider side. Definitely make yourself uh, exposed to all of the great information that comes out at places like reInvent. There's, uh, if you're curious about things I mentioned like shuffle sharding and cell-based architectures, there's wonderful reInvent talks available about that online. You can Google and find those. Um, I work for A Cloud Guru, which is a cloud education company that spends a lot of time helping people to understand this. So of course I have to drop in a plug for them as well. Um, but uh, you know, to some extent it, it is going to be about 
evaluating your specific use case, your specific risks as well. I mentioned earlier about not putting in redundancy just because you never want to have an outage. I mean, there's, there's a realistic aspect to that. A certain amount of downtime is acceptable. You just have to decide what that is based on what you're willing to pay. Uh, in the wake of the Kinesis incident, as I like to call it, you heard a lot of people saying, oh, we need to go multi-cloud. We need to architect our workload so that if AWS is down, it can run on Azure or vice versa. Um, you're introducing a lot of additional complexity into your architecture when you do that, of course. You're limiting your ability to take full advantage of a lot of the services that run natively on the individual cloud providers. You're sort of limiting yourself to the lowest common denominator of services, you know, storage and compute primitives that are available on all the clouds. Uh, and so that has measurable negative impacts for you every day in terms of what you're actually having to be responsible for. Uh, mm -hmm. So you, you just have to weigh those trade-offs and see how much you're willing to um, expose yourself to risk. Yeah, that's fair. Um, you give me an interesting um, thought on multi-cloud and maybe we will have you on the show another time to talk about it is when is it best to go multi-cloud versus not going multi-cloud. Um, um, for this week, Forrest, thank you so much for being on the show. This was really great just listening to you and, and I learned a few new things today and I hope our audience got something out of it as well. So thank you so much. It was wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, um, that was such a good interview with uh, Forrest. Oh my God, he is so knowledgeable. Um, and again, if you haven't checked out his blog post or um, his uh, website, forrestbristle.com, definitely go there. Um, I mean, you'll not just learn, but you'll have a great laugh too. So <laughs> with that, that was our show. Uh, don't forget to hit subscribe and follow us on Twitter. And as always, if you have questions, feedback, if you'd like to see a special guest on the show, Hit us up uh, at internetreport1000eyes.com. And finally, if you haven't gotten your t-shirt, again, um, send an email to internetreport1000eyes.com with your size and your address, and we'll get that right over to you. Until the next outage breaks or next week, we'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>